0: Father, in the scriptures, we know that you have revealed your plans and intentions for uh, the good news of what you have done to go from generation to generation. That uh, was the story that the Israelites told of your saving work um, in delivering them from Egypt. And uh, we, as uh, the New Testament church, now get the great privilege of passing on from generation to generation uh, news of a greater deliverance, uh, one, for, one from Jesus Christ, who delivered us from a greater Egypt, our sin, and from a greater pharaoh, uh, the devil. And so, Father, we pray for the young ones in our church that as we teach them and uh, they grow up, Lord, in the faith that they would know and trust Jesus personally. And so to that end, we commit them into your hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys are dismissed. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 as we continue in our series. Uh, Before we get to uh, the sermon, though, I, I do want to um, reiterate um, Elder Moon's announcement about prayer meeting and sort of um, the importance of that. I, I like that analogy of the if the church has no prayer. It's like a body without a soul. Um, you know, I heard once that, do you know that the church was conceived in a prayer meeting and birthed in a sermon? So in Acts 1, when all the uh, disciples of Christ were, were coming together and praying, that's how the church was conceived. And then the first sermon happened, and the church was birthed, and so prayer is uh, the sustaining uh, lifeline of the church. Uh, Some of you are unsure, should I go? It's quite a commitment, and uh, Elder Moon said, well, Why don't you pray about it? Yeah, pray about coming to a prayer meeting. And the perfect place for you to do that is at prayer meeting. So <laughs> if you're not sure, pray about it and come to a prayer meeting to figure out if that's what you should be doing. Uh, so we're in our Sunday series entitled Sunday Rhythms. And each week we're looking at just a different element of our Sunday service, a different element or practice of our order of worship. And we're trying to consider what are the shaping and forming uh, effects that coming week after week into church and going through these things what effect does that have because if it's just reduced emotions yeah sure we'll show we're bodies here we are just kind of receiving and leaving but instead wondering and questioning and looking at what are the shaping and uh, forming influences of what we do as God's people so today i want to talk to you about the rhythm of praying, and we're going to do that from Matthew 6. And so would you all stand with me for the reading and the hearing of God's holy word as we read Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. Please hear now the reading of God's holy word. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, and would you join me in prayer? Father, this day we come before you. We call on you as Father not on a not on as a distant god but loving close intimate father. We ask that your name would be made holy and made much of. We pray that this time that the realities of the love and the grace and the forgiveness and the celebration of your kingdom would be manifest among us. We pray that your will be done in and through us as your people. We pray God that you supply every need that you give to us our daily bread, but you also provide for us forgiveness of sins. We pray, God, that you would lead us, especially in this hour, not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, deliver us from distraction, deliver us from fatigue, deliver us from anything that would seek to grab our attention and to lure our hearts elsewhere away from you and your word. So, Father, we pray in this hour as you teach us and you form us in the rhythm of prayer that, God, we would become a a praying people. And as a praying people, Uh, we would be a people who walk very closely with you in love and fellowship and in intimacy and that that would have profound effects on our lives because we know and we walk and we talk with God our maker. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. amen. Uh, This past week, I had this uh, amazing privilege of being in a one week intensive class on pastoral leadership. Uh, I'm a student again in the Doctor of Ministry program at Westminster, and we have these one week modules. And they brought in a professor, Dr. Harry Reeder III. Now, some of you may not know who he is, but he is a pastor in the PCA uh, of a church of 4,300 members. He's pretty much like a governor. And he is the pastor there. He's been in the ministry for, I think, over 40 years godly man and just got to sit under his teaching and uh, talking about what does it mean to be a pastor and pastoral leadership. And uh, in one of his lectures, he was, Dr. Reeder was talking about uh, the centrality of the role of prayer in the life of a minister. Well, in the life of a Christian, but he was talking specifically to us as ministers. And he shared this story. You know, and he, He's now been in the ministry for 40, 45 years, but he shared a story um, about when he was younger and about all the ways his different pastor mentors um, challenged him on the issue of praying. And he told this one story about this great man of God um, who one day grabbed Dr. Reeder and pulled him aside. And and he was an older gentleman. And he looked at him and he said, Brother, we must commit ourselves to prayer. So you will meet me tomorrow at four in the morning. Dr. Reeder looks up at him and goes, is God even up at four? <laughs> now, I thought that was a funny story because, well, you know why, but in the Bible, is it not, don't we read of Jesus getting up at four in the morning? Mark chapter one, verse 35, and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. Now, of course, we can read something like that and, and think, oh, this is a command that we need to wake up for early morning prayer and that, you know, we, 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 if we don't pray like this, then we're not really praying. No, not at all. Of course, the practices of Jesus, they're, they're very good for us, but they're not actually mandated or required in the Bible. And I bring that up because there are things that are mandated and required in the Bible, So when Jesus is talking to his disciples, in the similar account of Matthew 6 that's recorded in Luke 11, the disciples actually ask Jesus, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And if you actually notice in verse 9 of Matthew 6, Jesus says, pray then like this. He gives instructions. You see, Jesus doesn't tell you, pray in a certain location, pray in a certain posture, pray at a specific time, follow a set ritual of prayer, memorize and recite these things. He doesn't teach you that. This is what he teaches you, the content and the order. He teaches you what to pray about and the correct order in which to pray. That's why he says, pray then like this, and gives us a model prayer in the Lord's Prayer. So the instructions for prayer that are given to the disciples weren't just given and applied to them, but it's also to be received by New Testament Christians as we learn the rhythm of prayer. We learn about the centrality of prayer. And so as we're in Matthew 6, here's our gospel truth. Our gospel truth is this. Prayer is not getting God to do what we want, but God getting us to be who he wants. Let me say that one more time, and Jonathan, could you put up the PowerPoint? Prayer is not getting God to do what we want, but God getting us to be who he wants. So that prayer and petitioning is actually a way in which we're formed as people. So I want to reflect on this gospel truth this afternoon under four points, four headings, and and that's these four. Prayer reestablishes your priorities. Prayer submits your will to God's. Prayer reminds you that you're needy, and prayer exposes your spiritual condition. And so let's get started by looking at this first point. Prayer reestablishes your priorities. Jesus begins, let's look at the first petition in in verse 9. He begins like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. First, Jesus teaches us that prayer doesn't begin with your needs and your wants, But it begins with a confession and a humble plea that God would receive the glory and honor in all things. That the Father in heaven, that his name be set apart for glory and honor. Now think about how much this runs against the grain for what passes as prayer these days. The way prayer is described and practiced by most people nowadays, you really wouldn't be able to differentiate between Christian prayer and what you would ask a genie in a bottle to do. There's really very little difference if you hear the requests. You see, most of us approach God and prayer as if it's primarily a means for us to get what we want from him. So we treat prayer as a self-serving tool instead of as a means and a way to bless and to honor God. Have you heard the story about the young boy who grew up in church and he was in Sunday school, very similar to ours, and he learned about prayer? And the teacher said, what she was taught, prayer is if you ask God for something, he will give it to you and you just need to have faith. So the little boy took that message and he went home and thought, okay, well, what are the things I need? And his bike, which had grown old and rusted, lay there, and he thought, I need a new bike. So he goes to his room, and he prays, dear God, please give me a new bike. Well, the next morning, he wakes up, and he goes out into the front door, and sure enough, there's no bike. So he says, oh, I must have done something wrong. I did not pray in Jesus' name. So he goes up to his bedroom, and he prays, God, I want a new bike, and you can just put it in front of the front door, and I name it, and I claim it. In the name of Jesus. Well, he wakes up and he goes downstairs. And sure enough, the next day there's no bike. He goes a third time. What is wrong? You know what? If I believe it, I'll receive it. So he prays Jesus I want a new bike. Leave it down. front. He goes down. Sure enough, there's no bike. This boy's getting frustrated. What's wrong? Why isn't this prayer working? I was told if I pray, then God will give me what I want. So the boy goes down into his basement, and he starts going through all of these boxes, and he's tearing the whole thing apart until he comes across a little, vir- a little statue of the Virgin Mary. He takes that little statue, he goes to the garage, he takes a shovel, he goes in the backyard and he digs a big hole. He digs a big hole, he throws the statue in there, he covers it up, he goes back to his room and he goes, dear Jesus, if you want to see your mom again, you're going to give me a bike. That's a silly story, but it actually pretty much sums up how many of us pray. Now, maybe not to that degree but certainly reflecting the heart of God, give me what I want. That's why we're so upset at God when we don't receive what we think we so rightly deserve. That's why unanswered prayer is one of the most common reasons that people walk away from faith or walk away from the church or say, I don't believe in God. I prayed for this once and it never came to be. But Jesus comes and he teaches us a whole new way of prayer. No, when you pray, you start with our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You start with the petition that God would be set apart and honored above all things. When you pray, do you always begin this way? When you pray to God, do you always begin by setting his name apart and prioritizing his glory? So I imagine with me the impact this would have on your life, your prayer life, if you began every prayer centered on the priority of making sure that God preserves and he protects his honor and his glory at the cost of all things, that you're so, imagine that your prayer life is so consumed with God getting the glory and receiving the honor in all things that you say God, in fact, I so am concerned about your glory, your honor, that if anything else I pray contradicts that, would you not listen to the rest of my prayer? Imagine how different your prayer life would be. See, when Jesus teaches us to pray this way, he's totally reestablishing, rearranging the priorities of our lives. When you pray this way, when you pray, "Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, you're essentially saying, Father, feel free to deny every other request after this if your name is not going to receive the glory and the honor in it. Feel free, God, to ignore everything else that I say if it contradicts your glory. What an incredible way to pray. What an incredible challenge to the way that we pray. You see, when you pray and you pray as Jesus teaches you, it begins to form and shape you because you have to submit yourself to God. You're openly declaring that what God wants is more important than what you want. And so this regular rhythm as we continue to learn and pray, both in your own private life and in the life of the church, it actually reinforces to us what is truly important. Because listen, if your prayer life is only about you and the things you want and the things you need, you are reinforcing, you are forming and shaping yourself to actually believe that you and your needs are the most important things in the universe, But if your prayer center on God first, you'll be shaped and formed to understand that the most important things are not about me, but are about his name and his honor. So we begin, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Well, the second thing that we learn about prayer is this. Prayer submits your will to God's because Jesus moves right along in verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, when we pray, God, your kingdom come, we're praying that the realities of his kingdom are made manifest here on earth. When you pray, God, let your kingdom come, that's a war cry. That's a battle cry. Did you know that? Because when you're praying, God, let your kingdom come, what you're also praying is, God, let your, come, let your kingdom come victoriously to conquer the kingdoms of this world to destroy and to level the kingdom of Satan. God, your kingdom come, your will be done. May you take over this world that was taken hostage by sin, take back what is yours, destroy the opposing strongholds and fortresses that stand in opposition to your kingdom and your will. It's a battle cry to pray, your kingdom come, because his kingdom coming, he will not come and set up shop right next to you and draw a nice little picket fence so you can live together in harmony. When his kingdom comes, it is taking over yours, which means praying this prayer is actually very scary. Because if you're praying, God, let your kingdom come, what you're saying is, even if that means destroying my kingdom, Even if that means destroying my little world where I rule and everyone serves me and I receive all the glory, even take over that. You see, there's no way that you can pray this prayer while simultaneously hoping that your life won't be affected. Because if anything... Praying this way is an invitation for God to wage war against the things in your life that don't bend the knee to his plan and his purposes. The Lord's Prayer, everyone thinks it's a nice, safe prayer. No, it's not. It is dangerous. It is very dangerous. And yet this prayer shapes and forms us as we regularly pray because it gets us to submit our purposes to his, our will to his, our plans to his, our kingdom to his. Friends, did you know that there are two ways that God's will gets done in your life. There are, two, there are really only two ways that God's will gets done in your life. The first way is joyfully and willingly. And the second way is forcefully and painfully. It's going to get done. But there's only two ways that it gets done. God's will always prevails. He's the Lord of the universe. He's the architect of reality. There is no way that his plan and his purposes aren't going to go forth. You're going to be in the way or you're going to move out of the way. And that will determine whether it will be joyful and willing or whether it will be forceful and painful. All of the past, all of the present, all of the future, it's bending its knee to God's will to make way for his kingdom. I mean, parents, think about this. Have you ever said to your... Well, you probably have to imagine because you've never had to say this to your kid, but, you know, you say something to them, and then they defiantly don't do what you tell them. They... Disobey your will. Use your imagination. I'm sure it's really difficult to um, imagine such a thing happening. But, you know, if they did this, how do you respond? Maybe some of you respond with a threat. You know, do you want to do it the hard way? or Do you want to do it the easy way? You know, my parents used to say this. They say, do this. And I'll say no. And they'll say, well, you have two options. You can do it now. Or you can get hit and then do it. (laughs) In either case... It's going to get done. The Lord, the king of the universe, the creator of all things, the sovereign one, his will will get done. Who can stand to oppose it? But the question is, how will it get done? Will you bend the knee to it or will you stand opposed? God's will is going to get done regardless of whether you willingly surrender to him or he surrenders you to his will. The question is, do you want it the hard way or the easy way? And I wanted to give these two illustrations just to compare and contrast them. Um, There's a story about the Roman Emperor Julian uh, who ruled in the 4th century AD. And uh, Julian is known as Julian the Apostate apostate, because he was an enemy of Christianity. Uh, He ruled after Constantine and if you know anything about Emperor Constantine, he established Christianity as the religion of the state. Well, when... Julian, the apostate, came along. He tried to make decisions to remove Christianity as the religion of the empire. And uh, Julian also wrote uh, a, 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 a treatise entitled Against the Galileans, um, Against Those Who Followed Jesus of Galilee, because he wanted to attack the Christians. And uh, he, he had this whole campaign to revive pagan worship and ceremonies. And he was trying to get rid of Christianity and, but after three years on the throne, he was actually mortally uh, wounded and, and he died. And the legend has it that as he was bleeding to death out there on the battlefield, that he took a handful of blood and he tossed it in the air and he cried out, You have conquered, O oh man of Galilee. You have conquered. I have tried to stop you. I have tried to get rid of Christianity. And now I here I lie dying. You have conquered, O oh man of Galilee. You see, despite his greatest efforts, God's will prevailed over Julian's will. And Julian ended up surrendering to God's will, but it was the hard way. Now, on the other hand, consider this prayer written by Betty Scott Stamm, who was a missionary. Earlier in her life, before she went to China, she had written this prayer. Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and I accept thy will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all, utterly to thee to be thine forever. Fill me and seal me with thy Holy Spirit. Use me as thou wilt. Send me where thou wilt and work out thy whole will in my life at any cost, now and forever. Well, she wrote that before she became a missionary, went to China. But unbeknownst to her, years later, as her and her husband were doing ministry in China, they were captured by the communists, they were put in chains, they were marched to their execution half naked. Betty Scott was forced to watch her own husband martyred by decapitation in front of her eyes before she was then executed for her faith. Now, laying her life down for the Lord, Betty Scott Stam surrendered her will, her life, her everything to God. God had his way. And you may think, well, that's not a very good way. But when you surrender to his way, it is the easier way. Because Julian's life and being so opposed to God's will, I mean, his life was like a reed that snapped in half under the pressure of God's will. Whereas Betty Scott's life was a reed that gently bent under the sovereign and safe and good purposes of God. Both had God's will fulfilled God's will fulfilled in their lives, but one was in joy and victory and the other was in misery and defeat. So I share these two contrasting examples to you because when you pray this prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. It doesn't mean if you don't pray that God's will will not be done, it will just be done the hard way. Are we able to take on the posture of submitting ourselves, not pushing our agenda against God's, but laying our agenda at his feet? Now, is it easy to pray that way? Of course not. It's not easy at all. It goes against my self-interest. It goes against my natural desires and desire for self-preservation. But it properly puts God's will above my own. E. Stanley Jones once wrote this. He wrote, if I throw out a boat hook from the boat and I catch hold of the shore and I pull, do I pull the shore to me or do I pull myself to the shore? Prayer is not pulling God to my will but the aligning of my will to the will of God. So friends, as we learn to make petitions and pray before God, may our prayers begin to align to His will instead of struggling and fighting and attempting to get God to align to my will. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The third thing prayer does is this. Prayer reminds you that you're needy. We don't really like that word, needy. But this is what prayer does. In the next petition, we're taught to pray in verses 11 and 12. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Jesus is saying here, at this point, you need to confess your two greatest needs before God. So he says two things. First, asking for daily bread is admitting that your greatest physical need can only come from God. Your sustenance for life. A Jew would have read this. The disciples would have heard this and understood uh, kind of what he was alluding to. Israel in the desert. Every day waiting for manna to come from heaven. So asking for daily bread is admitting my greatest physical need comes from you, O Lord. You are my daily sustenance. Can you confess that? And then Jesus says, well, here's the second thing you need to confess. Not only that your greatest physical need comes from God, but your greatest spiritual need comes from God. Because you need to ask for forgiveness for your debts. You are admitting before God two things. One, you're admitting you have debts that you owe to God. Two, you're admitting you can't pay back those debts on your own. Praying, forgive us our debts, is a confession that you are spiritually bankrupt. That you have nothing in the bank that you can offer to God. You have a debt you can't pay. So when Jesus teaches you to pray these two petitions, he's basically saying, are you willing to admit that you're needy? Are you willing to admit that you can't, that you can't take care of these things, that you can't supply what you think uh, you can? And, of course, this is offensive because we're in a culture of self-sufficiency, autonomy, independence, and this goes against our every sensibility. You know, in pride, I will either refuse to ask someone for help or I will refuse to admit that I'm in need. And then the things that we do have, we refuse to say somebody gave them to us. You say, I worked for this. I earned this. I deserve this. Prayer forces us to reckon with the fact that everything we have in this life comes from God's hand. You see, some of you here read this prayer, give us this day our daily bread. And you think, well, why would I pray this prayer? I have plenty of bread. And of course, by bread, it's referring to just material things in life, the things that you need. And some of you, you know, our congregation, many of us are blessed. We're not in great need. And so do you just skip over this prayer request? Do you skip over this petition? And the answer is, of course not. Because the prayer request, the, the, when Jesus teaches us this prayer, it's not just getting you to ask God for things. The prayer, re- this petition is getting you to admit that you need God for all things. So yeah, sure, you may not worry about food on the table, you may have enough bread to last two lifetimes, but you still need to pray this prayer because it's getting you to admit, God, every day I need the things that you so graciously provide. You see, when I was a kid, I had, uh, I had asthma, but it went away really quickly, so I sometimes would have asthma attacks. And I do remember this one time, um this is my this is when my dad actually tells me this is when I actually first thought that you might be. A preacher or a pastor. I, think, I forget how old I was—eight years old or so—and I had a bunch of family around, and I was playing, getting excited, and all of a sudden I couldn't start breathing, and I couldn't find my um, inhaler, and so I'm like, I'm breathing like this, and I'm having this panic attack, and I'm running around the house, and there's a family gathering, and I'm standing on the couches, pointing at uncles and like, "You pray for me, and you pray for me, and you pray for me, and you pray for me." I'm just calling upon everyone to pray for me, and. I remember praying, God, I need air, I need to breathe, I need oxygen. And I really felt this desperate need, this desperate urgency for, for air. Well, I don't really remember what happened. I'm, I'm still alive, so that, at least that happened. Well, every other day since then, I've never prayed that prayer ever again because I've never had another asthma attack. But do I need oxygen less now than I did then? Do I need air less now than I did then? No, I have it fine. I don't need it any less, which actually means that my understanding of how without a daily breath I cannot function. Even though it's given to me, I still need to be thankful. I still need to attribute that to the daily provision of God. In the same way, some of, you, some of you may have trouble, there may be bills and it's difficult to pay and you may lack material things, you need to pray these prayers for others, this may not be the case, but either way, is it not true that you need these things every single day and they come only by the gracious and fatherly care and provision of God. God wants us to realize how much we need him. So whether that is little or much, whether we are in want or plenty, whether we're in a season of abundance or famine, we must pray, God, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts because it's a confession that whether spiritually or physically, I need you every single day. And maybe I could propose this. Maybe I could go so far as to say this. Could it be possible that when you actually don't have everything that you need, when you actually lack something, that that is actually a great blessing? Because it gets you to depend on God. We're so primed to believe that anything that we don't have is a curse from God. But if this prayer and this confession is true, then friends, that may be one of the greatest blessings. God has withheld this from me so that I could go back to the source and receive an even greater measure of it from his hand. Prayer reminds us that we are such a needy people. So we pray, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And fourth and lastly, prayer exposes your spiritual condition. Jesus ends his prayer in verse 13 like this. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Well, that last petition exposes the true spiritual condition of our hearts, which are threefold. Basically, our hearts are weak, our hearts are wicked, our hearts are wayward. Weak, wicked, wayward. Have you ever realized that you don't have to teach your children to sin? That you don't have to teach your child to be disobedient? I was in college, I was a junior taking a class when the professor said this, and it was utterly shocking. He says, I believe that all mankind is naturally evil. I was like, are you a Calvinist? (laughs) He wasn't. He said, this is why. I said, he said, "I had my, my daughter is, uh, was an angel when she was born. And, and he gave the story that once when she was two years old, they were watching TV, and she was getting close to the television. And she was kind of covering it like this. And he was like, honey, no, no. And he said, this is the moment where I understood the true nature of humanity, that she was almost near the TV, looked at him, Gave this utterly defiant smile and just covered the television. And he said, in that moment, my two-year-old Princess Angel, who taught her how to do that and take such joy in doing that? (laughs) Who teaches us how to sin? I didn't take evil 101 in college, but I have a PhD in it. And you do too. Without instruction, without enticement, we naturally stray toward temptation. We gravitate toward evil. And we hate to call it evil. No one wants to be called evil. But our selfishness, pride, envy, impatience, all these are forms of sin, which is evil. You know, our hearts, they're like a steering wheel. And you ever hit a pothole and then all of a sudden your alignment's off and so you're holding it straight, but you're going right. Our hearts, they're just, they've veered off in the wrong direction. They're naturally oriented and bent away from God and toward self. And so when our hearts are left unchecked, we are, when we're left to our own power and our will, we will just naturally incline away from the Lord and toward evil. Without the instruction of the Lord's Prayer, without God telling us, pray, hallowed be your name, we will seek to hallow our own names. Without the Lord's prayer, we will never want God's kingdom to be built but our own. Without the Lord's prayer, we will never seek God's will to be done in our life but our own. Prayer then gets us to admit that we're not just wicked, we're not just wayward, but we're actually weak. Because when it says, deliver us from evil, what is that a confession of? I can't deliver myself from the evil. Then in the midst of the evil, I just feel completely powerless to it. I give in to sin so much. I'm too weak to get myself out of the way, which is why God says, or through Paul in 1 Corinthians, you know, no temptation has you come over you, but, which is common to man. But, but, God will always provide a way out. And God needs to provide a way out because left on our own, we will never seek the way out. You see, our hearts are not only wicked, they're not only wayward, but they're weak. And prayer gets us to admit this. That we need to be led away from temptation because on our own, we don't have the self-control to flee from it. We need to be delivered from evil because on our own, we can't deliver ourselves. So simply put, this petition teaches us, it exposes our hearts and gets us to admit we're not as strong as we think we are. And so the daily rhythm of prayer exposes we are weaker than we thought, more wicked than we imagined, and more wayward than we want to admit And all this happens as we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So, those are the four things prayer does. We learn that it reestablishes our priorities. It submits our will to God's. It reminds us that we're needy, and it exposes our true spiritual condition. Okay, how do I bring this sermon to a close? Well, remember this gospel truth. Prayer is not getting God to do what we want, but God getting us to be who he wants, So it's true that our prayers, they shape us, they form us, but do you know that, yeah, your prayer shapes you, your praying forms you, but do you know that it was somebody else's prayer that makes you new? See, your prayers help shape you, but it's somebody else's prayer that saves you. You think your prayers, they help form you, and they do, but it's somebody else's prayer that frees you. Now, what do I mean by this? We're so used to believing this about prayer. If I pray, God will give me what I want. That's just, if you ask anybody on the street, what is prayer, that's what they'll come to. If I ask God, he will give me what I want. But the reality of Christian prayer is this. Somebody else has prayed for me, and because of that, God has given me what I need. We think, oh, if I just pray, God will give me what I want. Christianity comes and says, there is a greater one who has prayed for you, and therefore has given you what you most need. You see, Christianity is not about the strength of your prayer and the power of your faith, and therefore God responds to you because of your merit and your eloquence. No. Those things are important, but they are not what fundamentally makes you who God wants you to be and what makes your prayer acceptable. The strength and the resolve of prayer is not measured by yours, but by Christ's. It's measured by the faith and the resolve and the strength of Christ's petition over you. See, here's what I want you to notice. Matthew 6, great passage, the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew 6, Jesus teaches us how to pray, but it's actually in Matthew 26 where we see Jesus praying for us. And we see his prayers very similar to what we have here. As Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane, and he's contemplating the cross that's awaiting him, listen to how he prays. My Father, our Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he sees the disciples sleeping, and what does he say? He says, pray so you may not be led into temptation." See, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays the first two petitions that we talked about. He prays for the good father to reestablish his priorities and submit his will to God's. Why did Jesus do this? Why does he have to pray, not my will, but your will be done? What was God's will that it was so important for Jesus to obey and pursue? God's will was to offer you forgiveness for your debts and to deliver you from evil. That's what God wanted. That's what God was working toward. That's why he sent Jesus into the world. And so Jesus prayed and he humbled himself and he gave up his life for you. And in doing so, in dying on the cross for you, he actually prayed and fulfilled the last two petitions. That he who knew and had no spiritual debt paid your debt by the ransom of his life on the cross. That he who knew no evil underwent the greatest evil of death on a cross so that you could be delivered from it. We must praise the Lord because Jesus is not just a moral teacher. He's not just a model to follow. He is the God-man come to pray over you, to live and die for you so that God could give you not what you most want but what you most need. So that God does not become what you want, but you become what he wants. You see, when you realize, friends, when you realize God is more committed to providing what you truly need, he's more committed to that than merely giving you what you want that needs to change the way you pray. You start praying that God's name is hallowed above everything else that his kingdom his will is established in your life first and foremost because when you realize that God is more committed to making you into who he wants you to be more than him being who you want him to be you will begin to realize this I do not have to primarily care and petition for myself why Because the Father who has provided every need of mine took care of that before I even asked. Before you even asked. He didn't send out a survey poll and say who wants to be saved by Jesus. Before the foundation of the world, he had planned to send Christ. And we have a Father who will meet our every need in that way. That freezes up the prayer. I don't have to be so worried about always praying the right prayer, making sure I get the right things. God will take care of that. All you need to pray is, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let Your kingdom come and your will be done in my life. You see, the Bible gives you more than a model of how to pray. The Bible tells you of a man who prayed for you. And the gospel promises something even greater. Because it wasn't that Jesus prayed for you once, died on the cross, and that's it. Friends, he prayed for you. He died on the cross. He was resurrected in glory. And in heaven, Hebrews 7.25 testifies, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus Christ is resurrected in glory so he can pray for you and make intercession for you. You see, every other religion says that what's most important about it is that you pray to God. You, it's, it's about what you do for God. You need to pray these kinds of prayers. You need to follow these chants. You need to say this to God. But it's only the good news of the Christian gospel that says God prays for you. Do you realize how countercultural, how offensive that is? How radical, how wonderful, how comforting <laughs> The gospel says that Jesus prayed for you when he died to forgive your sin and to deliver you from evil. And now Jesus lives to intercede on your behalf until he brings you home into his presence. This God who has met every true need of yours in and through Jesus Christ that is worthy to be trusted so that I can abandon how I want to pray, which is God give me this and make sure I have this and this and this. But to say, Lord, you have given me your son, how will you not also give us all things? So I don't need to worry in my prayer life about the things that I want, but I can pray putting you first and believe that in that you are actually changing me. Can you trust, do you trust that God has your best interest in mine? Because if you do, it will change the way you pray. you won't ask god to change his mind but you will ask god change mine see this is the shaping and the forming power of prayer as we work out our petitions every day individually every week corporately hopefully twice a week as you go to prayer meeting you see this is why the gospel is so good yes okay so why pray yeah we do it in obedience jesus said pray then like this why pray because god told me to But a gospel believer can say, why pray? I pray in response to the one who prays over me. I pray in response because my Savior is in heaven interceding, making petitions on my behalf. And if if he has the ear of God and is making petitions on my behalf, then I can change my petitions to not be about myself, but be about God's name being hallowed, his kingdom coming and his will being done. So when we pray, why do we pray in Christ's name? We're praying through his authority. We're praying because we believe he's interceding for us now. So we don't go to God with another separate request. We go to God and we see Jesus who's interceding on our behalf. And we say, yeah, what he's saying. (laughs) What he's saying. God, listen to, to that. I'm praying in Jesus' name. Listen to what he's saying. Friends, this is the Christian gospel. We have a Savior who prays for us. So our prayer life is not out of duty. It's not out of selfishness. It's in great response of joy. Because we're no longer seeking for God to be and give to us what we want. But we're seeking to be who God wants us to be. So that is my prayer. My prayer for you. That we would be a gathering people who meet every single week to Look up, move down, remember the past, and come together. Praying that we become a singing people who hear the commands to sing, but more than that, sing because we have the melody line of God's song over us. And that we become a praying people who pray, why? Because our Savior prays over us. May God form and shape us to be like that. Join me in prayer. As we respond now... This is a great opportunity to practice what was just preached. So I invite you to just pray, just kind of work through. Some of us have the Lord's Prayer memorized, but sometimes that's a problem because we only just say it without really having digested it. Would you respond now, just in a moment, and just pray, asking God to be hallowed in your life, for his kingdom to come, his will to be done, to confess and admit your neediness, the wickedness, waywardness and weakness of your hearts and respond to him. Would you join me in prayer? Father, would you continue by the power of your Holy Spirit to be glorified in our worship. We pray, God, that before we receive anything, before we're blessed, before we walk away edified, that first and foremost, you would receive the glory. You would be pleased with what little we bring. But we thank you that everything that we bring, as inadequate as it is, is sanctified through the blood of Jesus. So even this prayer, we only pray in the confidence of Christ but we know that through Christ we have your ear. For Jesus taught us to pray not our God in heaven, but our Father in heaven. Lord, you know that this prayer can change our hearts, not as we simply memorize it, simply chant it, but as we pray through it in a way where we are asking more that you would change us than we are that you would change. Help us, God, to submit ourselves, to commit ourselves to the endeavor of prayer, both individually and corporately. Form and shape us to be who you want. And we pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Friends, now receive the Lord's blessing. Now may the grace and and the intercession of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father who is hallowed and whose kingdom and will we ask to be done and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit who works to transform us and to change us as we pray. May the blessing of the triune God be with God's people both now and now. And forevermore. Amen. Friends, hear the dismissal from 1 John chapter 5. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Amen, friends. Go in peace.